If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. Yes. <laughs> do you like a board game, do you? <laughs> do you know what I can't stand as a board game? Yeah. I used to like them, you know, years ago. At Christmas time, up the north. Northerner loves a board game. Oh, right. Loves a board game. And it, would that be a Scrabble or a... Yeah, there'd be something that would really be taxing my intellect. Yeah. I like, thought it'd be Monopoly for you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, how are you, Head? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I've just come back from Inish Boffin. Oh, yeah. Well, I was in Roundstone first. Yeah. And then it's one of my favorite places. Yesterday, I went to Tleggan, got the boat across Inish Boffin, a most magical island. I've never been there before. Yeah. Amazing. Rent a little bike up, up the side. There's a beach. It's an island with no cars. No, it has cars. It has oh, cars. It but there's not that many of them knocking right. around. And it's got an amazing beach. And from the beach, I think it's called East Beach or something like that. From the beach, you see back to Lewisburg, to Ackle. <sighs> To Crow Patrick, to the yeah. 12 bands. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And yesterday was sun, like factor 150. Yeah, right? for you. Exactly. Yes. So it was cloudy then, yeah? It's cloudy. It's a little bit overcast. <laughs> but it was just so beautiful. And I just thought, wow, in the sunshine. I know it's a cliche, but this country is gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous, gorgeous, And gorgeous. there's a big, um, as far as I remember, there's a big colony of common seals out there. That as is, opposed to refined seals. Well, you see, the thing about common seals is they're actually not common at all. They're just really common in Ireland and off the coast of Scotland. And they're gorgeous. Big seals. oaks. Yeah. Yeah. Tell you what's well worth a little day trip if you want to have a look at a seal. Mm-hmm. Right? If seals are, take your fancy. The back end of Dorky Island. Oh, I've kayaked it. And it's full of them. Oh, yeah. Huge things. And, and they, they're massive. They play with the kayaks. No, they? they do. Yeah, they they come up and they bob up one side, and then they come up the other side, and then come up and jump on your kayak, and in order to capsize you. Oh, really? Yeah, unbelievable. But there's a big colony of them over yeah, there. Yeah, I did. There's, a big, do- there's big white fellas there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's, there's one with a dodgy eye as well. I did a documentary on them, a radio doc. Yeah, you're a man of many talents. Oh, many talents. Because we're going to talk about pride now, and you did a documentary with Tom Robinson. 
Well, no, I did uh, not a documentary. I did several albums with Tom Robinson, actually. Look at you, Dark Horse. <laughs> Tom was great, actually. And, and kind of speaking of pride and stuff, Tom explained to me, and this actually kind of links in with, with Inish Boffin and the emigration from all those small towns in the west of Ireland and yeah. all the island communities and stuff. But Tom explained to me how... You know, he knew at an early age that he was gay, but he found it really difficult to come out in his own hometown, as you can imagine. But the relief and the the joy that he experienced moving to London to a metropolitan thing, where he like he, he told me one day that he was walking along the street with his boyfriend holding hands, and when somebody was walking the other way, he dropped the hand immediately. Like with embarrassment and shame and trying to hide, and your mom's going, "Hey, man, this is London. It doesn't okay. matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter." A and he was of one of the very first to come out as a gay man. Yes, he was. Yeah, very, very. And and he was he was brilliant in terms of you know gay rights and and really advocating yeah. for that. But I also sang on one of his big hits. He did not. Glad to be gay. You did not sing on Glad to be Gay. I did, yeah. John Davis, this is a moment. Extraordinary. Play it. Tell them. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Hey. Sing if you're glad to be gay. Sing if you're happy that way. Sing if you're glad to be gay. John, <laughs> there you go. Your falsetto. <laughs> I've been working on that. <laughs> yes, your inner Freddie Mercury coming out. That's brilliant. I didn't great, know that yeah. at all. Yeah, well, it's a, it's it's a funny it's a funny funny thing because speaking of of coming out, the bloke we're about to talk to, he and I, you know, the way we 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 were economists on this trading floor in mm. London, right years ago, and it was such a macho environment. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so macho. I can imagine. And I had no idea. Paul was gay. He was sitting beside me for yeah, ages, yeah, yeah. and and it's it's fascinating. And now he's now he's very very prominent in trying to organise a thing called Economics for Pride or Pride for Economics, which is basically okay. trying to get gay economists because to basically say they they their lived experience is different, so they bring different solutions to the table. And it's a movement wow. in the UK. You know, it's a, it's something. It's again, it's it's the idea that diversity helps make decisions. Helps yeah. your decision makings. Yeah. His name, and, and and he's now the chief economist of UBS. But it's funny because I was only just now thinking, what was it like in that really macho environment, especially Re- in the eighties? There was yeah. there was the nineties, so it was real or laddism. The 90s, it was right. laddism yeah. is proper yeah. East End Cockney laddism. Yeah, and, but it was uh, either that in London. I remember there was that Cockney laddism, or it was the Sloan Rangers, like the yeah. totally yeah. Well, it's quite interesting with the Sloan Rangers. The Sloan Rangers were also in the investment bank. So mm. there was there was a very so the Cockneys basically it was like an army, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. The Sloan Rangers were like the non-commissioned officers of the army, right? They were quite right. posh and they were all in corporate finance. Oh right? yes, totally. And, totally. Yeah. And then yeah. all, all the geezers, all the geezers <laughs> were in trading. And we, the economists, were in with the geezers, which is really right. weird. We're in the geezers. But uh listen, why don't we it's very interesting because what he talks about is the fourth industrial revolution which is upon us, the technology and AI and et cetera, is going to profoundly, profoundly put having proper policies for a country or for a company that involve 
including diversity, has been absolutely essential for the creativity. So it's a fascinating stuff. So Brilliant. Paul Donovan, let's go up to London and talk to Paul. Many, many years ago, many years ago in London, I found myself working at a large Swiss bank. And this bank was getting very, very large. It was getting actually bigger every month, as far as I can see, as they kind of took over things. And the, the city in the early to mid-1990s was a very, very unusual, quite good fun, but unusual place to work. And one guy who worked beside me is now the chief economist of the same bank, Paul Donovan. He is on the line from London. I want to talk to you, Paul, about LGBTQ plus economics. I know that might sound strange, but you contacted me a little while ago and you said, look, here's an event that's going on in the UK. It's called Pride in Economics. It's about gay economists coming together, discussing the world from their view. I, I actually would love to be able to go to the event, but I won't be able to because we're stuck over here, still in quarantine in Ireland, almost. Um, but Paul, lovely to see you. It's been a long time. It has been. It's. It's. I mean, I still get the the stream of of David consciousness being beamed at me by the podcast. Of course, it's not quite the same as having it constantly next to you, you know, for twelve hours a day. But you know, it's it's almost there. How are you anyway? All good. I'm very good, thanks. And yourself? I'm in flying form, in really, really good form. And I want to get straight into this now. First of all, I want to ask you, okay, because you you and I sat beside each other for a long time at work. When did you come out? So. Absolutely not in the 1990s in the city. Um, absolutely no way. I was I was so deeply in the closet. I qualified for citizenship of Narnia. This was just this was not something you could do because the financial markets in the 90s. I mean, it was homophobic, racist, misogynistic. I mean, it was a really unpleasant place to work. I mean, I was I was doubly closeted because I was I was closeted about being gay. Um, and I also was desperate that people didn't find out I'd been to a state school because I... that too could be damaging to your career at that stage. Less so, I think, in, in the world of economics because economists were seen as slightly strange. We were a bit weird. Yeah, that's true. We were, seen, we were seen as very exotic creatures in that rich exactly. savannah. We were amongst the... But the state school was... In a, so it's the class thing. And, and the sexuality. Wow. Because you can remember the 1990s. I mean, when I was growing up, being gay was a death sentence. Because the whole HIV thing, I mean, that's how it was perceived. Yeah. And you know, this was pre-Dawson's Creek, pre-Will and Grace. You had no role models on in, yes. in popular in culture. popular culture, yeah. The internet wasn't around. I mean, yeah, this was this was a really weird environment. So, yes, so you, you kept your head down and you, you carried on working. Um, and so sort of people knew and found out gradually over time. And I suppose really for the last decade, I've been a lot more actively involved in issues around economic diversity and inclusion. That's the need for economics itself to be a lot more diverse and inclusive because, you know, Lord Keynes notwithstanding, we are not a particularly diverse organization uh, in society. Um, uh, but also looking a lot more seriously at how diversity and inclusion shape economies. And this is what I think is critically important because in my view, Diversity and inclusion is the single criteria for economic success over the next 20 years. If you don't get this right as a company, as a country, you're not going to succeed in the next two decades. Now, let us focus on, on this, okay? Let us focus on this because you've written about this fourth industrial revolution. We're, we're actually living through it. And sometimes you don't realize you're living through a revolution because you're, you're occupied with life and stuff and trying to, yeah. trying to make ends meet and do all that sort of stuff. Explain to me the link between the fourth industrial revolution and the primacy 
the primacy in economics and in commercial terms, and I presume in cultural terms, of diversity and inclusion. Explain this. What, what has changed to elevate one and what has changed that the countries that don't get it won't get on? So what we're talking about here, obviously, is you know, it's robotics, it's automation, it's digitization, it's the, the revolution in communication, all of this good stuff. And people get excited about the technology because the technology is the nice, shiny new toy you get to play with. And it's been the same in every other industrial revolution, right back to the first one, where they're, you know, they're getting all excited about, about the latest gadgets that are being produced. But when you actually look at it, the technology is the least important part of the economic yes. success. It's the least disruptive part. So you know, here am I working from home in the west of England, which is where I've been since I, I fled London in the manner of a, a 16th century noble fleeing the Black Death in March 2020. That was it. I was off to my, my home in the country, and, and there I have stayed. And I've been working from home perfectly well for you know, the last 15, 16 months. Um, now, to do this, of course, I need technology. I've got a laptop. I've got a webcam. The laptop's three years old. My buying a laptop three years ago changed nothing about the economy. The fact that I am working from home using my laptop means real estate demand is changing, corporate investment is changing, food distribution is changing, consumption habits are changing, transport is changing. All of that is coming not from me buying a laptop, but from how I use the laptop. Yeah, no, now, I'm that, with you. Yeah, well, now this is the critical point, because if we're talking about how we use technology, what matters is people, what we so clinically refer to as human capital. It's people that make the difference. So you absolutely have to have the right person in the right job at the right time. That is your critical issue if you're going to be making a success of all the opportunities that technology throw up. If you're going to use irrational criteria, and that's what prejudice is, of course, it's irrational discrimination. If you're going to say, actually, I, I'm not going to hire that person. They're brilliant. They're exactly right for the job. But we don't hire women. 1970s, that was a common, yeah. too many women in the workforce. I'm not going to hire them because I, I don't hire gay people. I'm not going to hire them because they're a foreigner. I'm not going to hire them because they've got red hair. I use the example. No, 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 no. Red-headed league, Sherlock Holmes, discrimination against red-headed people. Exactly. So you, you have all these weird things. If you're not doing that, if you're not getting the right person in place, you're not inclusive, then you're going to underperform. If you sort of grudgingly hire them and you keep treating them as a second-class citizen, yeah, that person is less than other people, they're not going to perform to the best of their ability. Um, and so you end up denying yourself the real potential yes. that having diversity and inclusive workforce can, can really achieve. Your decision-making is worse. You know, if you've got a monoculture of white, Anglo-Saxon, bald, middle-aged men sitting around the table taking decisions, and believe me, I'm a paid-up member of this group now. I've got nothing against this group. But if that's all you've got feeding into an input process, you're going to miss the opportunities and you're going to miss the risks. You're not going to have the diversity you need to deal with a rapidly changing world. And you're throwing away the talent that you need to make the most of the opportunities. I mean, this is why it is absolutely central. You don't get this right. You know, close the company down now. I mean, it's, it's just a matter of time before you, you go into terminal decline. And do you think, because I, I've always been fascinated between this link between tolerance and acceptance and economic growth, because it's unambiguous. And I can tell you, this country in Ireland, when we went down that rabbit hole of intolerance and dogma and religion, 
surprise, surprise, the economy didn't perform for 70 years. Why? Because the creative people that dislike dogma, that want that looseness, that want that urban experience, that want that cosmopolitan experience, that want to take risks in their lives, simply leave the country. So many, many brilliantly talented Irish people just left, right? They said, we're not up for the fight. We couldn't be bothered. We don't have the ammunition to fight this institution. So we're going to do our thing in London. We're going to do a thing in New York. And it is no, well, I think it is, it doesn't surprise me that the economies that are run by dogma tend to be second rate and economies that are free and loose and accepting and inviting for creative people and people who who want to express themselves sexually, emotionally, financially are the economies that do well, which is why urban economies are always these vibrant places or at least up until COVID. So why, I mean, the UK gets this, I suspect, right? We do and having voted on, on, on marriage equality actually you know, I think it was one of the very first countries to actually go and vote on this. Yep. Why do you, give me an example of countries that don't get this right, you know, either in history or, or, or right now, if you can see countries that you think, mm, this is going the wrong way. Well, so I think there's a fantastic example from the UK in the Second World War, which is Bletchley Park. Now, Bletchley Park was, was cracking the Enigma Code. And this was absolute number one priority. The Enigma Code was supposed to be unbreakable. You had to crack this code if the UK had any chance of surviving. And Bletchley Park broke the code. And the estimation is that this reduced the length of the war by two years. I mean, enormous, enormous enormous impact. I mean, in terms of lives, in terms of economy, if you want to be, you know, trivial about it. I mean, it was huge, huge impact. And uh, Winston Churchill said, uh, after a visit to Bletchley Park, he turned to his, his aide and he said, when I told you to leave no stone unturned, I didn't expect you to take me so literally. Because Bletchley Park was the model of diversity and inclusion. There were women there, for crying out loud, at a time when you know, the women were, were the major computer operators at Bletchley Park. Uh, Alan Turing, who's just been put on the £50 note in the UK, was... As openly gay as you could be, and everybody knew this. And it's we need Alan Turing because he is the best possible person for the job. Absolutely, we have them in. And the end of the war, the UK was years ahead of anyone else in terms of computer technology. Years ahead. Wow, I didn't know that. And by the 1960s, it had lost it, and it had lost it for various reasons, but. Mainly, a lack of manpower. The key word there being manpower, because most of the computer operators were women. But women in 1945 get back to the home. You're not. We, we don't need you now. Uh, and that lack of diversity, lack, lack of experience, cost the country. And of course, Alan Turing tragically was prosecuted for his homosexuality and committed suicide. And this brilliant mind was lost for the most trivial of reasons. And prior to that, after the prosecution and before his, his suicide, you know, he was writing about how he was, he was not able to concentrate, he wasn't able to, to focus because of the, the persecution, he was undergoing chemical treatments, I mean, it was horrendous. Chem- chemical so castration that, or something, wasn't it? it was something chemical like... castration, psychoanalysis, all this sort of nonsense. And he was, you know, he was constantly being told, you're less than, you're less than. So one of the people who was single-handedly responsible for shortening the duration of the war and was being lauded because he was absolutely 
the person who needed to be recruited uh, for Bletchley after the war is being told, no, you're, you're being told literally you're subhuman. And that's what prejudice does. It, it tells people that they're, they're subhuman. And that's an example, I think, of where you have diversity producing enormously important results. And then that, about, that very abrupt, May 1945, you abandon that diversity and it all comes crashing down. And uh, an enormous economic advantage and, of course, the social uh, and, and humanitarian arguments just come collapsing down with it. And it takes decades to overcome that prejudice that had been abandoned in the face of economic and you know, military necessity in, in 1939. Now, Paul, you also say, I mean, I, I love these examples because they do, they're a microcosm of broader societal trends. And there's no, no doubt. But there is, I mean, there's also a lot of people who are conservative, who are feel intimidated, feel threatened, feel, feel morally in some way, I don't know, threatened by, what do you say to, to those folk, you know, who, who, who aren't bad, but are just blinkered? Well, this is where, um, I think technology, the technology of the fourth industrial revolution can help because there's a concept called parasocial contact theory. It's two parts. So contact theory is you are less likely to be prejudiced against people that you're friends with yeah, because you know them and you see that they're, they're just like you. And the moment that you start to realize, actually, they, they're just like me, becomes very, very difficult to portray them as somehow subhuman, somehow less than you. Very, very difficult to do that. So if you can form friendships, if you can form some kind of social contact, contact theory, that reduces prejudice. Parasocial contact theory started actually in the 1930s with radio. And what psychologists found is that people started forming virtual friendships with radio characters on soap operas. So there's a soap opera in the States called uh, The Goldbergs. Uh, which is about a Jewish family in New York. And it's argued this substantially reduced anti-Semitism in the United States because people became emotionally invested. Invested with Mr. Goldberg or Mrs. Goldberg or daughter Goldberg or whatever it was. And it was, uh, I think, the, the, when the, the sun went away to the Second World War, because it was obviously running during the Second World War, it was, it was the most listened to radio program ever up to that point. And then, of course, you go to television, you've got even more parasocial contact, because you're not just listening to them, you're seeing them, and then you become really emotionally involved. So uh, Michael Cashman, Lord Cashman, who is uh, now in the House of Lords, but obviously was on an actor on EastEnders, you know, had a, a, a gay kiss. And I mean, this provoked horror in the UK tabloid media and these horrendous homophobic headlines. But because he was sort of playing every man. People identified with him and, and um, the, the character he was having a kiss with, Barry. They identified with those characters and they saw they weren't threatening. And that sort of chipped away at the, the sexuality prejudice, for example. And now, of course, what we have is social media. And this has done a number of things. It's reduced the barriers. So yeah. now it's a lot easier to go out and broadcast. I mean, you still have to have a certain amount of time, but uh, and and some money, but you know it's it's not like it used to be. It's 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 democratizing mass communication, and you've got even more interaction because you're not just listening or or watching the person. You've got the comment section, and the comment section you can interact with with you know the, the broadcasters or whatever. Um, and so you now have this parasocial contact. You feel 
but you're best buddies with the, the person that's broadcasting out to it through yeah. whatever medium it is. And you get emotionally involved in their lives and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden you realize, well, they are uh, a different nationality or actually I never realized a different religion or different sexuality, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. You get that degree of bonding and that helps to bring down the prejudice. So I think that there are there are positive ways. Now, there are negatives as well from social media. As we know, yeah. you, you can go down a very dark, dark place. I and mean, when I was researching my book, the most the worst couple of months of the research were looking in white supremacists in the United States and how they manipulate social media and so on. And it was just, you know, it, it really, really depressing. Give, give, me, give, me an, give me an example of that. Give me an example, because I, 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 I tend to avoid those rabbit holes myself. Well, so you can, the problem is minority groups benefit from social media because they get the parasocial contact. They get yeah. the networks. You're able to contact each other. And that's hugely important if you're, particularly with sexuality, where you're sort of evenly distributed around the country. You know, roughly 10% of the population is LGBTQ+. You're genetically, your rules of genetics mean you're evenly distributed. So, you know, you can feel like you're the only gay in the village, to quote a very old sitcom yes. from the UK. And you feel isolated, but then the social media network brings you together. Yeah. The problem that we keep forgetting is that the persecutors, you know, the extremists, are also a minority in society. Yes. And so, and so they benefits, coalesce around the same dynamic. Exactly the same tools. Yeah, exactly. And so you know, there, there, are, there have been a number of biographies of people who've been pulled out of these you know, cults, that the Westboro Baptist Church, which has got absolutely nothing to do with Christianity, in my view, it's a horrific organization. But members of, of this, the founding this, family. This is very deeply homophobic, but it's very it's tiny, isn't it? racist. It's yeah. it, that they, they, they picket military funerals in the United States. Well, that's what they're notorious for. And there are people from, from the founding family who've, who've come out, who've, who've escaped the clutches. And their, their biographies report about you know, the, the closed world view that you have. And everything that doesn't agree with your view is fake news. Yeah. And you, but you've got this sort of closed circuit. And then there's uh, the, the, the white supremacist movement in the States. David Duke's godson, who was due to take over the, the mantle of leadership, was also brought out of this and has, has written a, a biography about his time there and about how he was brought out. But again, it was this, you, you listen to the podcast rather than watch yeah. no, know, I'm with neutral you. television, that kind of thing. I'm... So, yeah, I mean, it's very, very dark about how this comes through. But the good news is that you can also tackle prejudice and bring prejudice but down if the you, other way. If you think about where we started, Paul, you and I were just chatting about it. I, I do remember those trading floors and I'd just been completely intimidated by lots of the geezers, right? And it was just yep. a big lads culture. That's what it was, right? Yep. And, and 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 all the girls on our trading floor had to be lads as well. I mean, the whole the whole thing was, and it was just ahead of Britpop and ahead of all that sort of stuff that was so laddish as well. And we've come a long way. Yeah. You know? No, I, I think we, we have to recognize the progress. I mean, there has been huge progress on a lot of areas. And it's because people are more aware. And you know, I, I don't think we should underestimate things like YouTube. The fact that you can see prejudice happening in front of you, you know, when someone with a smartphone is recording it and posting it on YouTube, yeah. that actually is very powerful because you can't ignore it anymore. And that forces you to confront it. And that I think is very helpful. 
because what it does is, is it challenges your, your own prejudice. And we're all prejudiced. Everyone's got prejudice. And uh, Erica Karp, who was a colleague of ours who was in global equity strategy back in the day, so I, I interviewed her for the book, and she always said, I'm the ideal candidate for prejudice because I'm, I'm a woman, I'm a Jewish, I'm a lesbian, and I'm short. Um, and she, she has this fantastic line, which I always quote. She, she said, I always make, try to make people feel a little bit uncomfortable. You don't want people feeling really uncomfortable. So they're really uncomfortable. The barriers go up. Yeah, of course. But if you make somebody feel a little bit uncomfortable, they're challenging their own prejudice. And that's you know, yep. the laddish culture of, of the 90s in the financial markets. No one was feeling uncomfortable there as long as you were a lad. I was feeling bloody uncomfortable sat there and in my you know, isolated bubble. But if you were a lad, you weren't, weren't feeling uncomfortable. But if you start to make people question, start to challenge, make them feel a little bit uncomfortable, that starts, yeah, that starts the process of this. Now you were writing, and that gets us where we are. You were writing, I just saw today, about an LGBT investor, an LGBT economy. Is there such a thing? I mean, of course, the economy is, I always thought, it's, it's, it's many things, but what it is as well is it's a bunch of daily experiences. That's what it is. It's economic life, right? Commercial life, whatever you want to do. Uh, would you go so far as to say there is an LGBT economy, that pride in economics, that this idea that there is something else going on within the LGBT community? There is. I mean, this, this is one of the key points, that if you are part of the queer community, you have to invest differently from somebody who is unfortunate enough not to be part of the queer community, because you have a totally different life experience. Nowhere in the world do we have equality. Nowhere. You may have legal equality, but for example, as you said, Ireland votes, for, it is, it's the first country to take a democratic decision for marriage equality. Huge step forwards. There's a famous paper, it was a couple of years later, after marriage equality in Ireland, if you were a same-sex male couple wanting to rent from Airbnb in Dublin, mm -hmm. you were 20 to 30% less likely than a straight couple to be offered. What would happen, it, it wouldn't be that you'd be denied. They would just never reply to your email. If you signaled that it was two men looking to, to rent... And I'm, I'm, and not, I'm, just, I'm going to just cut to a stereotype. I thought all you guys were really, really into interiors and into you. You'd be the greatest yeah. tenants you could have. Well, exactly. But it's, it's, this, it's this inherent prejudice. The UK, um, yeah, so Alan Turing, on the £50 note, being celebrated this month, the government still hasn't banned conversion therapy, which is essentially a form of torture and predicated on... LGBTQ plus people are less than. So we've got equality and there's huge support for it legally, but there's still this underlying prejudice. When you start looking at investment needs, I mean, it starts right from the beginning of your adulthood, that being part of the queer community is a rather unusual form of prejudice because it's quite likely members of your family are not targets of that prejudice. Now, if you're talking about religion or ethnicity or gender, then you do have members of your family who've got a shared experience. But if you're queer, your family can be the leading persecutors. You can be cut off. You can be thrown out. In the UK, 25% of youth homeless are uh, LGBTQ+. Wow. I, and I no they're 10% of the population, 25% of youth so homeless. Kicked out of, sort of kicked out of the house when they're 15, of they 16, are. 17. Yeah. Now, 
think about that. That's going to affect your education. I mean, it, it, it may not be you're sleeping on the streets. You may be sofa surfing. You may be you know, whatever. But you're, you've got insecurity. You've lost the security blanket of your family. It's a lot harder to take risks if you don't have that family network to fall back on. Yep. You might lose inheritance. You Certainly, you're not going to be saving money at, the, you know, at that age. You're going to find it a lot more difficult to get the education you need, particularly in countries where education is a lot more expensive. So in the States, this is a huge issue. So you can see here, right from the start, social attitudes, nothing to do with legality, social attitudes really affecting your contribution in the economy, how you save, how you invest. Job security, even if you've got legal job security, half the LGBTQ population of America are not out at work. And they're not out at work because there is prejudice. And you think, well, if I'm out, I'm not going to get the promotion opportunity. I'm not going to get put on that training course. If you're not out, the stress not being out leads to underperformance. I mean, I can, the, the constant stress in, in the 90s of having to think about, you know, editing what I'd done for the weekend. In a casual conversation at work, you edit. You're constantly editing the pronouns. I mean, it's, it's you know, you're, you're living on your nerves. Stressful, yeah. It is stressful. Yeah. And, yeah. and that affects that affects your productivity. It affects your output. You know, in, in boring economic terms, I mean, it's just wrong, but it, it, it is going to have an economic impact. And that, again, changes your ability. And, of course, you, you can't have the same job opportunities that you know, a, a straight person is going to have. So I remember a few years ago, a headhunter called me up and, and was saying, well, you've got this fantastic opportunity at Sovereign Wealth Fund. You'd be, be great for it. And they, they know of your work. They'd be very keen to hire you. And I got a fair idea of where this Sovereign Wealth Fund was. And so, uh, although I, I wasn't married, I killed the conversation by saying, and can I bring my husband? And that's it. <laughs> The conversation and just ends, and there is no... There's a, there's a there click on the far side of the phone. Exactly. Um, now, yeah, as I said, I wasn't married, but it was still just sending that signal I knew was going to terminate that career opportunity for me. Not that it was a career opportunity I wanted. I'm you know, still at the same bank after almost 30 years. I'm not looking to leave, but... Yeah, no, I hear that's you. That's the sort of problem. Uh, and that's that's what we're dealing with these days. So, um, so, so these things do change the economy. They do change how people perform in the economy. It means if you're queer, you probably need to be holding more cash because, you know, you, you may lose your job. You've got to have that insurance and so on and so forth. You've got different health care costs. You're less likely to own a home. You're more likely to live in an expensive area for safety. I mean, all these sort yeah. of things come through. Just finally, before we go, think about our little economics game, okay? And you and I were in the trenches many, many years ago, learning, it must be said, learning on the job. Oh. Very much so. Actually, you know, we're painting a picture of, of this horrendous trading form. It was actually very enjoyable. The whole thing it was a, yeah. an unusual experience. Economics is very, very lacking in diversity. Okay, we yeah. know that. We know that, that it's, it is basically middle-aged white blokes, right? And has been for yeah. a long, long, long time. And, and even women didn't get a lock-in until quite recently. Yep. How do you think economics will change as it becomes more diverse? I hope that what we will start seeing is better analytics of the problems. Because inevitably, if you've got people from diverse backgrounds, they're going to have different approaches to economic problems, to economic challenges, different ways of, of thinking. And they'll be prepared to stand up and say, actually, no, that's not what we should be doing. Or that's not what we should be researching. And we see this now. I mean, it's more difficult with sexuality and race because it's more difficult to get data from that. But on gender, 
we know that topics which affect women in the economy are woefully under-researched in economics, because particularly in academic economics, there's a shortage of female academics rising through the ranks, writing research in, on these particular topics. There's also, I think, you know, a, a risk of self-censorship, that if you are in a, a stereotypically you know, white, cis, straight male profession, and you think, well, I need to advance, then you sort of edit yourself. So, for example, women will not talk about their families at work, for example, and they won't uh, yes. in economic terms. And, and, yes, and, yet, uh, and yet men never shut up about their families at work. Well, exactly. Uh, but, but you say, no, 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 because that's going to that's gonna brand me as being stereotypically women, yes. female. And, and, you know, men who are uh, gay will, will edit what they're talking about and edit the areas of research and you know, not suggest certain topics because they want to conform. They want to conform with this stereotypical environment. And that's very, very destructive. And it's intellectually destructive. So I hope that we're going to start seeing far broader discussion. And there are moves to, to diversify the profession. And we're seeing through the Royal Economics Society has got a, a Discover Economics program, which the Pride in Economics is part of. The uh, American Economic Association is, is also doing this. What we've got to do and what the Royal Economic Society is doing is target the 16-year-olds who are starting to think about what could they study at university and you know, start right yes. there to get it right. That's what we've really got to do, but also hopefully to broaden out the range of research that is being done so that we actually have topics which appeal to a diverse group of people you know, from social backgrounds, sexuality, gender, race. I don't care what it is. You know, the, just yeah, the, just the more... people who come to something without the group think of their own tribe. Exactly. I mean, challenge is what makes economics interesting. You know, the fact that every other week I am shouting my disagreement at your podcast over my own <laughs> phone. That That's perfect. That's a healthy sign. That exactly. Is a, that is very, I'd actually, I'll leave it at that image of you shouting down as you're traveling around Salisbury there in West England. <laughs> Listen, Paul, it's been great to hook up with you again. And uh, I think you've definitely talked your way into the first 11 on the podcast. We'll be doing Thank you very much indeed. Listen, Paul, great <laughs> to see you again. Great to see you. Thanks very much, David. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So this team of of the first eleven. Oh yes, is, yes. <laughs> the first eleven. It's going to be very, very. It's very, very inclusive. Be very diverse. It's not only inclusive. It's number eleven. It's, it's the like first 111. It's, yeah, it's the first twenty-eight thousand. It's yes. the squad. Are it's we the starting? Squad. To... The podcast has a squad. Yeah, it is. That's a squad. It. We rotate the squad. <laughs> now it was lovely to talk to Paul again. It's lovely to see it's a fellow you haven't yeah. seen for like twenty-five years. And you kind of, it's funny, you pick up straight away. It's like, this is as if there's no huge distance, even yeah. though your lives are totally different. Because you had this period of five or six years working together, and it was like, these were 12-hour shifts all the time. It was like, mm. it was really full on. It's like as if, oh yeah, yeah, I haven't seen you for a little while. Yeah. But fascinating the way he's talking about, and this, this is something that accords with our thinking a lot, that the connection between, so creativity is the elixir of all economic growth. And economic growth is what makes everything possible. In the sense, it gives you the resources, it throws off the resources. Mm. So if you don't have innovation, you don't have growth. And if you don't have growth, you don't have all sorts of other good stuff right, yeah. that you can get with, right? Yeah. But at its core, innovation is an act of dissent. If you imagine that to innovate is to dissent, because you're saying, I can do something better than that, right? So I can dissent from the average or from the way in which people used to work, right? So therefore, the more you encourage dissenting people and dissenters, the much more likely you are to get very good decision-making and much more creativity. And mm. what he was talking about, Bletchley, you know, the, where they broke the enigma code. Yeah, yeah, Turing and the Yeah, like. Turing. Was a, but also he was talking about, it's not just Turing, it was women. So yes. it, it was, yeah, that, that was yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Loads of women were computer programmers. And then in 1945, the Brits said, okay, well, all you guys go back to, to, to home now. Mm. So they just, they just took, took all that knowledge and parked it and never used it. So what he's saying, and I think it's, is that in our new world of this fourth industrial age, which is the age of AI, it's the age of technology, it's the age of communication, the world that we live in, mm. right, where you can actually technically work from anywhere as long as you have the smarts and the technology and the network and the contacts. What he's saying is that the premium for the right person at the right job at the right time goes through the roof. Now, if you are, for some prejudicial reason, deciding that you don't want black people or gay people or, or whoever it happens to be, right? Yeah. What you do, or women, for example, what you do is you profoundly limit your options. And he's saying companies that go down this road, he said, are dead. Yeah. They will not be able to compete. Yeah. And countries that go down this road are dead. And again, there was an interesting Richard Florida. You remember him? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. He's an urban economist. Yeah. And he wrote this very interesting paper a long time ago on the gayest cities in America. And it was a very, very simple correlation. Right. What he was saying is that the gayest cities were the most wealthy. Right. And what he was using, he was using gayness as an indicator for tolerance. Right. Right. Okay. So if gay men and women come to a city, they can live there, they can be accepted, they can live a full normal life. And what you find then is within these cities, then there's a sort of a, a creative chemistry that goes on. And it's not ideally correlated one for one, but it's just an interesting observation mm. that the cities that are tolerant, not only tolerant, but the cities that are accepting of and welcoming to the gay population, tend also to be the cities that are the highest GDP. And, and, that, and the, go, that goes for companies then. It goes so for that, companies as and well. And it's interesting because I, I do, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I do a lot of work with Intercom, their mm -hmm. podcast. And we just did a series on Intercom Pride. And it was just, you know, the people in, in the company telling their story. Yeah. But it, it was the fact that it's the diversity and the acceptance and all that kind of... Yeah. 
into common or you know one of the Irish unicorns. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> so I think it's I think it's it's really fascinating, and I think that it's just interesting to talk to to Paul about twenty five years ago in London. There's mm. no way in the world he'd have come out. No way. Yeah. But he said something quite interesting as well. He said two things that he was most scared about revealing was the fact that he was gay, and the fact that he went to a state school, right? Right. Because it was such a class-oriented thing. And when we came from Ireland, they couldn't place us. Right. So yeah, the Paddies yeah, yeah, could yeah. actually go yeah. in and they, they just didn't know who we were, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But if you were English, it was that, what school did you go to class thing going yeah. on and the way you spoke and your accent and whatever else. And it's, it's fascinating. And, and I mean, there is going to be a massive, massive improvement in economics if economics embraces diversity and we get people with different accents, different skin color, different sexual orientations, different genders, whatever, becoming involved in the decision-making process of economics. Mm. And I, for one, absolutely welcome this, John, because I think this is what's going to bring economics away from the remoteness of academia back into people's everyday lives where it should be. Just a quick note to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. And if you fancy supporting us on Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. 